New on Curiosity Stream. Grab your lab goggles. We're out to find the world's coolest, loudest, and most in-your-face experiments. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. See how hands-on science can change our everyday lives on oddly satisfying science. Plus, from goats to guard dogs, hear surprising stories about the creatures that brought humanity to the next level. It's animals that changed history. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are twenty dollars, just a dollar sixty-seven a month. Visit curiositystream.com. As far back as I can remember, my father insisted that I had a special destiny. I was to follow in his footsteps and become a Walmart greeter. I remember one Friday evening, back when I was in kindergarten, when my father came home from a staff meeting. I ran up to him and asked, How was work, Daddy? His eyes lit up and he said, I had the most amazing day at the most amazing job on the planet. Holding his blue Walmart vest in the crook of his arm, he gave me one of those effortless, one-armed wraparound hugs that made me feel both warm and loved. In my mind, being a Walmart greeter was situated somewhere between F-14 fighter pilot and Ninja Turtle. It was a career steeped in mystery that promised untold adventure. My father never attempted to dispel this illusion, never said the job was demeaning, and never suggested that maybe better occupations existed. I had no reason to doubt him. I adored him with all my heart. The notion that my father would lie to me was an alien thought outside of the realm of possibility. A couple years later in grade two, our teacher sent home a newsletter inviting parents to come visit our classroom and tell us all about their careers. We heard from a nurse, a mechanic, and a plumber. After work one evening, I asked my dad if he wanted to speak to my class and tell them all about his career as a Walmart greeter. Oh no, he said, shaking his head. It is an immense responsibility that few can handle. Besides, if everyone had their dreams come true, it would no longer be special, right? I was disappointed, but I understood. Cheer up, my little raptor, he said, revealing a bag of assorted plastic dinosaurs. Look what I picked up from work. Elated, I jumped up and poured the contents onto the kitchen table. I selected a jet black T-Rex and passed it to my father. This is for you. Thanks, he said. His broad smile was almost too large for his face. I'll cherish this always. In grade three, a new kid moved in down the street, a hellion named Colin. As soon as we met, he took a special interest in making my life a living hell. I remember it was recess, and I was sitting alone, eating a fruit roll-up in the cafeteria. Colin sat across from me and said, Hey, I saw your dad working down at Walmart. My eyes lit up. I was so proud of my father. Cool, I said. Isn't he awesome? That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. Colin threw his head back laughing. You dumbass. You're going to work at Walmart too? I guess retard runs in the family. He said it loud enough for the other kids to hear, and a couple of goons sidled up alongside Colin, smelling blood. I was mortified. This was the first time I had ever heard anyone criticize my dad's job. I had never questioned it before. Why would I? My father always assured me that he had the best job in the world. The bell rang before I could muster a reply. As I walked away, I heard Colin say, Can you believe that retard wants to work at Walmart? After school, I sauntered home and cried in my room. My dad knocked softly on the door and asked, What's up, kiddo? I dried my eyes and tried to explain between sobs. The kids at school teased me because you were a Walmart greeter. He sat down on the bed beside me and gently rubbed my back. They make fun of what they don't understand. They cannot comprehend how special my job is, how it has the power to make all our dreams come true. Trust me. I choked on spit and sputtered. Okay, I'll trust you. I gave him a big hug and said, I love you, Dad. He squeezed back and said, I love you too, son. Afterwards, we watched a Jurassic Park and pretended we were dinosaurs. I was a velociraptor and he was the mighty T-Rex. The encounter with Colin at recess was a preview for the downhill slide my life would take. From that point forward, non-stop, inescapable bullying soon came to define my existence. 
Colin had an amazing talent for harassment. He skillfully turned my classmates against me, even kids I thought were friends. He came up with the hateful nickname Wally Walmart. Every time someone said that name, it felt like a mason jar of acid was tossed onto my face. I couldn't go out for lunch or walk the hallways without hearing that hateful moniker. I endured years of insults and harassment. Eventually, the constant degradation ate away at my self-esteem, and soon I began to seriously question my father's plan. I was in grade five when I finally built up the nerve to confront my father. Hey, Dad, I said. What if I don't want to become a Walmart greeter? Initially, he looked shocked, but then he sighed and his features relaxed. He sat down beside me and said, I knew this question would come up one day. I can't say I haven't been dreading it. Never lose sight of our goal. You have to trust me on this. It will all make sense one day. But what if I want to do something else, like become a doctor or a fireman? I said. He shook his head. No, you must push those thoughts out of your head. You must stay focused and stick to the plan. You have a great responsibility. When you turn 18, you are going to become a Walmart greeter and work alongside me. And that is final. But, I said, no buts. Trust me. He never lost his temper, but I could tell I had hit a nerve. I let it drop then, but the thought continued to linger and fester in my mind. In grade six, my dad started seeing this nice lady named Lois. She always came by on Friday nights, just before the weekly staff meetings. Without fail, she greeted me with a bag of assorted candies. She guessed correctly that sugar was a golden ticket to secure my approval. Then one day, she stopped coming by. I recall my dad was really upset. This was extraordinarily out of character. He was always in high spirits, even after a long day at work. I finally understood my father's mood when we went to Lois's funeral. I asked what happened and was told that she had a stroke. I remember I was filling a plate with sweets at her memorial service when I heard from an adjoining room my dad arguing with a bearded man. Murray, you got to understand, the rock needs to be fed, we had no choice. I'd seen him before. He was one of my father's co-workers. I know, my father replied. I just wish it didn't have to be her. Who else then? You? Your son? The man placed his hand on my father's shoulder, but he brushed it aside and stormed off. It was one of the few times I've ever seen my father upset. I wanted to follow him, tell him everything was going to be okay, and comfort him like he always comforted me. I had so many questions. I wanted to know what my father and the bearded man were arguing about. I wanted to know why Lois's casket was closed when she had a stroke. And I wanted to know why everything smelled so strongly of ozone. I never asked any of these questions, figuring it was not a good time. Instead, I went back to my plate of sweets. As I grew into adolescence, I took to routinely defying my father's wishes. The constant refrain of, trust me, was growing thinner, and the elaborate fantasy he had spent my life building was crumbling. Soon I came to absolutely loathe the idea of becoming a Walmart greeter. Every time I thought about it, my mind was thrust into the nightmare gauntlet of jeers and insults hurled at me by my peers. And since my father was responsible for this, by extension, I began to hate him as well. If not for him, I would not be Wally Walmart. There is no way I am going to become a Walmart greeter, I shouted at my 13th birthday. Since I was a social pariah, it was just the two of us. Please, you're still young, he said. You'll understand when you're older. Trust me. No, I shouted. I know I can do better than that. Why won't you tell me what is so special about that stupid job? He paused for a moment. It almost looked like he was going to explain everything and finally reveal the arcane truths of his so-called wonderful job. Look, he said, I cannot tell you much, you know that, but understand that standing at the front of the store is just a small part. I know what you do, I shouted. You smile and nod at people, that's it. I was screaming myself hoarse. All the resentment was pouring out. As I escalated, so did my father. No, he hollered back. You cannot comprehend the feeling of freedom that is both primal and ancient. 
If you just stick to the plan, touch the rock of dreams, you will experience a life that few before you have ever contemplated. Rock of dreams? What does that even mean? I demanded. He looked me right in the eyes, pursed his lips and said, I've already said too much. When you were younger, it was so much easier. Remember, we'd play dinosaurs and you believed everything I said. I need you to remember what that was like. I need you to trust me. I'd heard that a million times. I stormed away and slammed my bedroom door behind me. The bullying followed me into high school. Now I was Wally Walmart to an even larger, more intimidating group of teenagers. And Colin was always there, like a tumor. Colin was an innovative bully. He managed to turn Wally Walmart into a song that all my classmates somehow managed to memorize. Even my math teacher accidentally referred to me once as Wally. My mind went in directions so morbid that I surprised myself. Sitting in class, I daydreamed about all the unspeakably horrible things that I wanted to do to Colin. In biology, I remembered giving Colin a case of Ebola and watching as he bled out from every orifice. In math class, I fantasized stabbing him in the eye with the pointy end of a compass, then slitting his throat with a sharpened protractor. In gym class, I envisioned Colin being pummeled with dodgeballs, pleading for mercy, as all my tormentors turned on him. My favorite murder fantasy, one that I kept revisiting, involved me turning into a velociraptor and ripping Colin into tattered, bloody shreds. Imagining his agonized screams brought me a degree of peace that was wholly lacking in my life. I was in the middle of a fantastic death scenario when Colin brought me tumbling back to reality. Hey, Shitstain, he said. I saw your dad at Walmart again. He waved at me and I popped in the bird. What do you think about that? I tried to ignore him. I hated Colin so much, but I hated my father more for providing Colin with all his degradating ammunition. I was on the cusp of finishing high school when my father passed away. In the weeks prior to his death, I was so overcome with resentment that we barely spoke. Despite sharing a house with him, I would avoid eye contact and pretend he was a piece of furniture. And on the few occasions we did speak, he would do his best to insinuate into the conversation my future as a Walmart greeter. Invariably, this would piss me off, and I would return to mentally erasing him from my reality. Then came the heart attack, and the time we had left together was counted in days. When I came to the hospital to visit him, I knew that it might be the last time we would ever speak. I was afraid he was going to bring up the job again, and that I would overreact. I did not want our last words together to be an argument. I trembled as I entered his hospital room. I saw that he was awake, and he tried sitting up, but the effort was too great. He settled back down heavily. I came closer and sat down beside him. He wheezed as he struggled to speak. I'm sorry, son. I know your life hasn't been easy, and I know a lot of that blame falls on my shoulders. He started coughing, and his whole body convulsed. He continued. I have held back on telling you the secrets of my job. I know you feel like I have been deceiving you, that for your whole life I have been defending a deadened garbage job. I felt my blood rush, and I pursed my lips. He saw that I was becoming furious, and with the last bit of his energy, he raised his hand. I understand your rage, your fury. I just want you to know that, despite withholding information, I have never deceived you. The job is truly the key to unlocking your dreams. That was too much. I couldn't stand it anymore. Even now on his deathbed, he continued to reiterate the same crap. Without another word, I stormed out of the room. That was the last time I spoke with him. Later that day, he was struck by a second heart attack, the one that ended his life. Now without my father, I was alone. When I turned 18 a few months later, I felt lost. I had long taken for granted all the wonderful things my father did for me. He bought and prepared all our meals and provided a roof over my head. Most of all, he loved me 
and despite my adolescent belligerence, I loved him too. I missed him dearly, and I regretted being such an unrepentant dickhead. With my father gone, I was on my own without a life preserver. It was time to enter the workforce, but all I had was my high school diploma. There aren't a lot of options out there for people without a degree. Even dishwashing and landscaping required references and two years minimum experience. I handed out my resume to dozens of businesses without a single callback. After my father's death, I had time to reflect on his life, and soon I developed a degree of empathy that was absent while he was alive. I realized in hindsight how rough his life truly was. He was a single parent raising a kid with a minimum wage job. He was trapped in a less than ideal career that he kept for my sake, to keep me fed with a roof over my head, and I was less than ungrateful. I shunned him for his sacrifice. It wasn't his fault I was teased in school. It was Collins. Maybe I should have stood up to the bullies instead of passively enduring their blows. I was a coward, and always ready to blame my father for my failings. I was pondering my situation when I got a phone call. Hey, is this Murray's kid? Want a job? It was one of my dad's co-workers. I recognized his voice as the bearded man from the funeral. I'd spent much of my life digging in my heels and actively rejecting the idea, and yet, I was desperate. I needed a job or soon I would be homeless. A part of me thought that maybe if I took this job, I could make amends to my father for the way I treated him. So I put aside years of pent-up loathing to become a Walmart greeter. On my first day, they gave me a name tag and a used uniform that smelled like new sweat and old milk. I was brought into a claustrophobic office and was forced to watch a dull training video. I felt like the narrator was talking down to me. Be polite to the customers, always smile, and try to make a non-hostile amount of eye contact. My new supervisor brought me to the staff room. He said he was giving me my father's old locker. I saw the name. Mari. Still taped next to an old combination lock. Inside it was empty except for a jet black plastic Tyrannosaurus Rex. I didn't cry. But I wanted to. Then I was ushered towards the front automatic doors to finally commence my career as a Walmart greeter. And you know what? It was exactly how I thought it would be. I smiled and nodded at hundreds of disinterested people. There were no surprises. This is it, I wondered to myself. It was easy money, albeit extremely boring. Initially, I thought it wasn't so bad. But then Colin came in. Hey, look who it is. It's freaking Wally Walmart. Like father, like son. Man, you're as pathetic as your old man. I have never been so instantly furious in my entire life. I wanted to strike him down with a volley of blows and stab him in the face with a dull steak knife. Instead, I did what the training video said. I smiled and nodded. He laughed and said, Hang in there, numbnuts. You got a lifetime of smiling and nodding ahead of you. <laughs> oh man, this is fantastic. I was worried that after graduation I'd never see you again. Now I can visit you every day. I'll tell everyone that Wally Walmart has a job at Walmart. He grabbed a handcart, and I heard him cackling as he disappeared into the bowels of the store. By the end of the day, I was a wreck. All my suspicions were confirmed. The job sucked. There was nothing magical about it. My dreams were not coming true. Part of me still hoped that maybe my dad was right. Maybe there was some aspect to this job that was extraordinary. But then Colin's crap-eating grin intruded, and I felt nothing but shame. I was about to head home when one of the other greeters stopped me. Hey, where are you going? You're going to miss the staff meeting. It was the bearded man. Why, okay, yeah, sure, I said. I was seriously contemplating not showing up the next day, but I was too fatigued to offer any resistance when he gave me a nudge outside. In the parking lot, we found a lineup of a dozen people in Walmart vests climbing onto an old-school bus. The bearded man hollered, Hey, everyone, this is Mari's kid. Everyone's eyes lit up. One of the greeters said, You're in for a hell of a night, son. And another said, We sure miss your father, but don't worry. 
You'll see him again soon. I didn't know what that meant. I was confused and tired and offered no resistance to being ushered onto the bus. As the bus drove us further out of town, my curiosity began to grow. I wondered where we were going and why everyone was so excited. Moreover, why wasn't the staff meeting back at Walmart in the clearly marked staff room? Soon the bus turned onto a winding dirt road and skirted around a dense forest. I asked the person sitting beside me, What are we doing here? They laughed and said, We are going to make our dreams come true. I didn't push further. I felt nervousness flutter inside my chest. Soon we neared a large gate that swung open, allowed the bus to enter. We traveled through a dense corridor of foliage. Finally, the bus stopped and everyone poured out. I hesitantly stepped out of the bus and scanned my surroundings. I was surprised to find that we were in the middle of an open meadow with no buildings to be seen, just an impenetrable wall of trees. About a hundred feet away from the bus, at the centermost point of the meadow, was a minivan-sized hunk of volcanic rock. Everyone walked towards it, and not wanting to be left behind, I followed. As I drew closer, the stone seemed to emit ever so slightly a dull neon-green glow. The distinct smell of ozone filled the air. The bearded man saw my confusion and broke off from the group. What are we doing here? I asked. He gave me a hearty pat on the back and said, Your dad would be so proud to see you here. Watch this. He pointed towards an older gentleman, who I recognized as one of the other greeters. His eyes were tightly closed and he wore a huge grin on his face as he approached the rock. Suddenly I heard a loud snap and the old man stumbled backwards. He stood back up and brushed himself off. He opened his eyes and shouted, Supper time! The bearded man tapped me on the shoulder and said, Look behind you. I turned around and I felt my grip on reality unhinge for a moment. Where before there was nothing but grass was a spectacular dining room table, decked out with the finest spread of food I have ever seen. There were half a dozen sumptuous multi-tiered cakes, and a steaming plate of a duck a l'orange, and enough lobster to feed a platoon. How the hell did that happen? I gasped. Once again, the bearded man pointed at another co-worker. This time it was a woman. She wore the same overjoyed look on her face, with her eyes squeezed shut. The same procedure repeated. When she touched the rock, there was a loud snap and she fell backwards. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, an older gentleman appeared. I didn't recognize him as a co-worker, and he was not with the original group. When she saw him, her eyes lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, Stanley, it is so good to see you. They rushed towards each other and held each other in a long embrace. Then, from an unseen speaker, music began to play. The pair immediately took this as a cue to start ballroom dancing. The bearded man turned to me and said, Your turn. My turn, I stammered. What do I do? Just close your eyes and approach the rock, the bearded man said, and your dreams will come true. My mind did not want to process what was occurring around me. The logical part of my brain kept shouting that this was all some elaborate ruse, or maybe some misguided hazing ritual enacted to put the new guy in his place. But then the irrational part reminded me that my father repeated over and over again that the job would make my dreams come true. Curiosity got the better of me, so I walked up to the rock and cautiously reached out my hand. I felt all the hairs on the back of my arms suddenly go erect, and a disorienting feeling of vertigo washed over me. The smell of ozone became overwhelming, almost choking. When my fingertips finally made contact with the rock, I felt a sudden static shock and I stumbled backwards. What happened? I tried to say, but my mouth couldn't properly form the words. Instead, I delivered a strange, bestial honk. My entire body felt wrong, like all the proportions I'd grown used to had once shifted out of place. The bearded man grinned at me and said, Turn around. I obeyed, and behind me was a large mirror. I looked at my reflection and gasped. I transformed into a velociraptor. I had to be at least two meters long from snout to tail, and two meters tall. 
I held up my hands and found that my fingers had been replaced by terrifying three-inch-long claws. I did not resemble the tiny, real-life feathered velociraptors known to paleontology. Instead, I was the artificial beast that existed solely in the movie Jurassic Park. What the hell is happening to me? I shouted. Surrounding me was a ring of Walmart greeters, all beaming with joy. I panicked. I needed to get out of there now. I broke away from the crowd and took off down the same road the bus came in on. Beside me, the trees rushed by in a dark green blur. I couldn't believe the speed as I rushed towards the front gate. My path was blocked and there was no way around, so I backpedaled, increased my speed, and jumped right over the gate. Once more, I was back on the road. I didn't know where else to go but back home, so I headed in that direction. Even though it was getting darker, I was confident I knew the way. Now on the open road, I sprinted as fast as a car. I was terrified, and I felt my heart machine gun in my chest. However, the more I ran, the more amazing I felt. This experience was really something else, something extraordinary, something I could only dream about. Then, like a flashbang, a message thrust itself into my brain. Feed me. I stopped and skidded to a halt. What the hell was that? I wondered. I began running forward when once again the intrusive thought struck me like a seizure. Feed me. I continued running, but now I no longer felt the urge to go home. Instead, overwhelmingly, some internal drive compelled me to make a detour to Colin's house. Soon I was in the alley that ran adjacent to Colin's home. I hid myself in a row of hedges and peered into his backyard. I heard barking and found him playing with his dog. I stuck my long, scaly snout out of the bushes. Suddenly, the dog looked in my direction and froze. An angry snarl followed. Colin bent over to pat his dog. What is it, bud? Slowly, the remainder of my massive bulk emerged from the bushes. What the hell? Colin shouted as he jumped into the air, falling hard on his ass. I inched closer and closer to his prone and panicked form. I was going to enjoy this. I raised my weaponized claws and saw terror blanket Colin's face. It was the most beautiful thing I'd seen in my life. Then I tore him to shreds as his dog barked helplessly. I realized I was covered head to claw in Colin's blood. Bringing all this gore home would be a terrible idea, so I ran back to the woods. I found the gate and once more leapt over it and made my way towards the rock. For years I dreamed of all the horrible things I would do to Colin. I should have felt ashamed of what I had done. But I didn't. The intrusive message of feed me was gone. And now, I felt an overwhelming sensation of pleasure and satiety. As I approached the rock, I was greeted by a round of applause. You did it! The bearded man shouted. The rock is satisfied and will not need to feed for a few more years. He patted me on my long lizard back. You've got a promising career as a Walmart greeter. Previously, that thought would have sent me into an apoplectic rage. But now everything was different. Now I felt pride. The bearded man had one more thing to say. There was someone here to see you. I looked behind him and saw towering over us a life-sized, jet-black Tyrannosaurus Rex wearing a gigantic blue Walmart vest. Dad, is that you? Pancreatic cancer. That's what it's called. The thing that's slowly killing my wife. It doesn't sound so horrifying, does it? Pancreatic. It's the cancer part that's bad, obviously. It's the cancer part that's slowly eating away at my wife. My one true love. Relentlessly devouring every part of her. Until there's just a withering, wheezing stranger left her tormented gaze begging for it to be over, every fiber of her being aching for death. I'd tried everything up to that point, and I mean everything. You'd be amazed and appalled at the sheer quantity of bullshit snake oil miracle remedy crap you'll find if you just go looking for them. All the healers, shamans, witch doctors, and loathsome charlatans preying on the weak and desperate. 
but conventional medicine had failed me, failed my wife, and I couldn't find it in me to give up, no matter how much she begged me to. At first glance, the nameless street seemed like just another hoax, a nonsensical ritual pasta designed to amiss internet points. But the more I looked into it, the more I came to believe that there had to be some merits to it. Too many identical claims, too many similar experiences, too many vivid descriptions. Coming up empty on all other leads, I decided there'd be no harm in giving it a shot. The nameless street was as simple in its complexity as it was complex in its simplicity. At the end of an unnamed street, look for an abandoned house with a locked basement door. Find a way to get into the basement without breaking the lock. In the room beyond, you'll find two chairs facing each other. Make sure to lock the door again. Place 66 candles in a wide circle around the room. At the center, place one-sixth of a candle. When night is at its darkest, light all the candles. Sit down in the chair with the back turned to the door and count loudly to 66 and one-sixth. If you get it all right, the devil himself will appear, granting you a single wish in exchange for your soul. Finding the nameless street wasn't easy, but at the same time it wasn't that hard either. I just stumbled upon it, I guess. I went searching every morning after my visit at the hospital. That's the only thing that kept me going. Seeing her wasting away, another fragment of her dying every day. Body, mind, soul. Soon there'd be nothing left but memories. I paced the streets tirelessly for weeks, making sure to cover as much ground as I possibly could. Then one night, it was just there. The doctors gave her a month, maybe less. We'd been together since high school, ten years. Got married as soon as we legally could, sharing dreams of children, a house, a dog, a station wagon, a normal, boring, wonderful life. We were going to grow old together, die together, locked in an unbreakable embrace, exhaling our last breath at the exact same moment. But now she was leaving, fading, and I felt helpless and lost and alone. I, I needed this. I needed it to be real. It was just like I imagined. A harrowing house at the end of the street, all the windows smashed in, front door missing, exterior graying and faded. A faint smell of urine lingered inside, and the walls were all covered in tasteless graffiti. I didn't care to inspect the house itself. I was there for one thing. I descended the ramshackle stairs leading down to a surprisingly sturdy-looking wooden door and gave the handle a try. Locked. This was the place. When I wasn't at the hospital, Stan was. I didn't even have to convince him. I just wanted someone to be there by her side at all times, and I think he understood that. My brother got along well with my wife, and it seemed like the right thing to do. When I arrived after work, Stan would be there, and we'd talk for a bit. It affected him too. Devoured him like it devoured me. He looked older than any younger brother should. I had to fix this, or we'd all just fade to nothingness. I returned the next evening with candles and tools. I had no idea how to pick a lock, but luckily some guy on YouTube did. And after about 30 minutes of finagling and cursing, I heard a soft click, followed by the door sliding open. The basement was just how I'd imagined it too, cramped and damp and dark, two chairs placed at the exact center of it. Once I'd made sure the door was locked, I started placing the candles in a wide circle, saving the one-sixth of a candle for last. I sat down on the chair with the back turned to the door and waited. When the night is at its darkest, how can you tell? Isn't night just a lack of light? When the sun is down, isn't it just down? I felt stupid, ignorant, like I'd fooled myself into believing something that'd never work. How could it work? It was utterly ridiculous. But still, I couldn't give up now. I had to try. I owed my wife that much. I started lighting the candles. I figured it wouldn't get any darker, and couldn't very well spend all night in that creepy abandoned crap hole. Better to just get it over with. 
It took a good five minutes to get all the candles in the circle lit, and I swallowed deeply before lighting the final one. It didn't feel any different, but I sat down regardless and started counting loudly to sixty-six and a sixth seconds. One, two, three, four. My voice rang hollow and insincere. I glanced around anxiously while counting, but save for the dancing shadows cast by the flickering candles, there was nothing. Thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five. Don't you find this hysterically ridiculous? A cheery voice queried from behind me. I suppose I wasn't really expecting anything to happen. Not really. Thus the sudden realization that someone was there, behind me, caused me to tumble off the chair in shock, and I spent quite some time desperately struggling to get back up. I mean, you must have stopped at 66 and a 6th and gone, Wow, this is some next-level absurd-as-hell nonsense, right? He was not what I expected. At all. He was young, maybe in his mid-twenties, long blonde hair, dressed in jeans and a white hoodie. He smiled widely, emerald eyes sparkling vividly as they scanned the room. All you had to do was ask, he mimicked, holding up a phone to his ear. No need for this unnecessarily elaborate, he paused, waggling his right index finger around theatrically. I want to say... ritual? Who are you? I stammered incoherently. Such a useless question, he chuckled. Names have no meaning here. Are you? I staggered back into the wall. Are you the devil? Look, buddy, he grinned widely. It really isn't that important. What is important, however, is what I can do for you. He wandered around the room nonchalantly, eyes darting back and forth between the flickering candles and me. He was tall and slim, yet unnaturally imposing, like he could squish me like a bug at any moment, if he felt like it. I kept backing into the wall senselessly, like a frightened animal. Let's sit, shall we? He beckoned for me to join him as he sat down. We have so much to discuss. Oh my god, I mumbled. Was this really happening? Nothing about it felt right. It felt unholy blasphemous. My back scraped against the cold protruding bricks of the wall, like the pain somehow grounded me to reality. Oh my freaking goodness, I added. Look, you can call me anything you'd like if it makes you feel better. His piercing eyes dug into mine. It really doesn't matter what fantasy you subscribe to. In the end, they're all nothing but lies, and just like names, they only hold meaning to owners and believers. And let's just say I'm neither. Now, please, just sit, James. You're making this whole satanic deal thingy very awkward for the both of us. How, how do you know my name? I mumbled, still subconsciously backing into the unmoving wall. He threw his head back and laughed heartily. <laughs> so you came here, ready to summon the literal devil, but you're surprised he somehow knows your name? James, James... You're really out of your depth here, you know that, right? He motioned towards the vacant chair. Sit, James, sit, and we'll discuss what I can do for Nora. The mention of her name brought me back from whatever delirious state I was in. I suppose I immediately stopped caring whether it was real or not. The end justifies the means, isn't that what they say? Even if I was hallucinating, even if this was some insanely convoluted hoax. I had to give it a shot. I'd never forgive myself if I didn't at least try. I hesitantly stumbled to the chair and sat down facing the man. How do you know her name? I asked. How can you possibly know any of this? We've been through this, James. I know all I need to know, and that's just how it is. For instance, I know that Nora, sweet, sweet, darling Nora, is slowly dying from cancer. I say slowly, but that's really not the case anymore, is it? I'd give her maybe a few days, a week at most. Better start making some arrangements. Choose a nice coffin, find a decent plot, organize the service. These things take time, you know. Wouldn't want a half-ass or funeral now, would you? I felt a sudden rush of anger. Anger and resentment and sadness and despair. 
I wanted nothing more than to just punch his infuriatingly carefree face in, but something deep down inside told me that would be a horrible idea. Instead, I just broke down crying, heavy, convulsive sobs. There, there, James, my boy. It isn't over yet, he smiled. What if I told you I could take it all out of her? The cancer. Just reach into that frail, broken body and rummage around in there until it's all gone. Wouldn't that be amazing? I stared at him blankly, tears running down my face. Could, could you do that? I murmured. Could you really do that? I could. He leaned back, hands behind his head. But you know, I'd have to put it somewhere else. Natural order, balance, all that jazz. But I'll do you a solid, since I kind of like you, James. What, what do you mean? See, what I do with it, the cancer. It's entirely up to me. I mean, I could just stuff it in you. And normally I would, you know. I'm a stickler for irony. You know how it goes. You, you can't live without the love of your life, so you make an unholy deal with some diabolical entity to save her, only to die days later. Hilarious. <laughs> but since you've grown on me like a tumor, I'll do you one better. What do you say we stick the big C into your worst enemy instead? My worst enemy? Did I even have enemies? I mean, I didn't really like my boss, and my neighbor was incredibly annoying. And truth be told, I could really do without the you're-not-good-enough-for-my-daughter attitude from my mother-in-law, too, but an enemy? I suppose my co-worker Eric was the closest thing I had to an enemy. He was demeaning and malicious, always going out of his way to make me look bad. The more I thought about it, the more I realized just how much I hated him. Yes, I said. Do it. There's this guy, Eric, at my job. Oh, I'm sorry, he interrupted. I think you misunderstood me. I don't need to know who you think your worst enemy is. No, James, my guy. I know who your worst enemy is. I just need a yes and the old handshake to confirm our arrangement. That's all. How do I know you can do it? I suddenly felt a sobering doubt rising. This was all too good to be true. Too crazy to be real. How do I know I can trust you? Oh, I'm glad you asked. He chuckled. It's smart, you know, to question these things. I'm sure I manifested in this locked basement out of thin air and know more about you and your wife than any random stranger possibly could, but I get it. You need proof. He stood up from the chair and leaned in close to me. I instinctively sat into my seat, desperately trying to avoid his piercing gaze. Now, I would love to say that this wasn't going to hurt. His eyes gleamed eerily in the darkness. But I'd be lying. In truth is everything, isn't it? That's why you're here, for the truth. You might not know it yet, granted, but you will. And who knows, you might even come to thank me one day. What are you talk- With inhuman speed, he stuck both his hands into my chest. I know it's impossible. Of course I know it's impossible. But the pain was real, and the blood was too. Insufferable pain, like every nerve ending in my body was set on fire. Fountains of blood showered us both, and I felt the sudden presence of an impenetrable darkness. Don't cross over just yet, Jamesy boy, he laughed. We're only just getting started. I could feel him touching me from the inside, fingers digging into tissue and muscle and organs, every little prod bringing insurmountable waves of torment, somehow spreading to every pain receptor at once. I couldn't breathe, so I couldn't scream but I imagine every synapse in my body lighting up simultaneously to form a hysterical howl. Ah, he licked his lips. There we go, just the suckers we were looking for. They can be a handful, let me tell you, and all this blood makes it hard too, you know? It takes practice. With a forceful yank, he pulled his hands back, leaving behind a gaping hole in my chest. I should be dead, I thought as I stared into the mangled depths of my own body. I was convulsing uncontrollably in spasming seizures, but I still managed to get a long, good look at what he was proudly holding in his blood-dripping hands. Recognize them? He laughed. They're called lungs. Primarily used for breathing, I've been told. Ugly suckers, though, don't you think? Most of the stuff you find on the inside doesn't look as good as the outside. I guess there's some meaning to it, you know. 
aesthetics and such. He waved them around playfully, blood squirting everywhere. Every muscle in my body was spasming violently now, and I felt my mind starting to slip, overwhelmed by the unimaginable pain. I'm going to die, I thought. This is it. This is where they'll find me. But just as the alluring darkness was about to overcome me, I was brought back by his cheery voice. So, does that do it? He asked, his mouth now inches from my ear. Are you convinced? Do we have an agreement? I tried my best to nod, but I'm not sure you could easily discern the voluntary movements from the involuntary anymore. Blood was flowing in thick streams from the gaping wound on my chest, pouring into an impossibly deep pond on the cold concrete below. Suddenly he grabbed my hand and shook it vigorously. Good lad. He laughed heartily. It's a deal then. I'll yank the nasty tumors from sweet darling Nora and pack your worst enemy full of that stuff. Really can't wait for this one, James. Sounds like an absolute riot. Really can't wait for this one, James. Sounds like an absolute riot. The darkness was closing in, and I felt some manner of peace as a thick blanket of heavy tiredness enveloped every part of my being. I'll be on my merry way then, he said. People to meet and eat. You know how it goes. I could hear him walking towards the door, heavy steps echoing through the room. Too heavy for his lithe frame. Everything was turning black now, and I suppose I was mere seconds away from passing out and when his voice brought me back once more. Oh, right. I forgot. He chuckled. You probably need these. My numbing pain shot through my body as he pushed his hands into the wound again, brutally rummaging around in there for what felt like ages. Then, with a sudden yank, he was out again. There you go, he said. Good as new. Keep those suckers clean now, you hear? Stay away from cigarettes and huffing asbestos. He laughed. <laughs> anyway, I'll be seeing you, James. I have a feeling we'll talk again real soon. And with that, he was gone. I was left slumped over my chair, wheezing and spasming for minutes, before realizing I was completely fine. I refused to believe it at first. I examined my chest thoroughly, every inch of it, then turned my attention to the floor. Not a drop of blood not so much as a paper cut on my chest. It was like it had never happened. But it did. Didn't it? The pain was so real, so horribly, gruesomely real. Minutes of excruciating torture that felt like years and then... nothing? I didn't stick around to question what had happened. I got out of that basement in a panicky haze and never looked back. When I got home, I immediately collapsed on the couch and slept for twelve hours straight. I'm sure I would have slept longer, probably days, maybe a week, but I was ripped from my deep slumber by the sound of my phone. Yeah, I mumbled. Who's this? James, Stan yelled excitedly. You're not going to believe this. It's a damn miracle. A miracle. Even the doctors agreed. There was just no medical explanation for Nora's sudden recovery. No rational way to describe how the cancer had just vanished. Poof. Not a trace left in her. A miracle, they all agreed. Deep down, I knew that wasn't the case, of course. It wasn't miraculous at all. In fact, it was probably the exact opposite. But I didn't care. I was just so happy she was still here, still alive, still breathing. I've never cried like I cried that day. Tears of joy. Who knew such a thing could be real? Weeks went by, and that night in the basement slowly faded from memory. I guess I just went with it, you know. Pretended it was all some vivid hallucination brought on by sleep deprivation and desperation and grief. And when Eric didn't get horribly sick and die, like I'd secretly hoped, I just let it all go. Life moved on. Except it didn't. It all stopped in that basement. Maybe not stopped, but perverted. Grew out of control like cancerous cells. My wife sat down with me a month later. We need to talk, she said. I could tell by the look on her face that it wasn't anything good. 
There were tears, lots of them, crocodile and otherwise, and a pained, guilt-ridden expression. She wanted a divorce, she told me. She'd been seeing another man for quite some time now, but because of the cancer and her imminent death, she didn't have it in her heart to tell me. But now that she was healthy and had her life back, she wanted to move on, wanted to find happiness again. Who? I remember yelling. Who the hell is he? It's your brother, she sniffled pathetically. It's Stan. I suppose my life ended there. Betrayal comes in all shapes and sizes, but from my own brother, my own flesh and blood. It was too much to bear, and I guess I felt it already then. The hate, that seething anger and fury and resentment, consuming every fragment of my existence from there on out. She moved out the same day, packed her crap and went to live with my brother. I sat in the darkness of my trashed living room for days, fueled and fed by nothing but babbling detestation and loathing and hatred. I wanted to burn him alive, nail him to the wall, dig out his eyes with a rusty knife. He was already dead to me, but I wanted him dead to the world too. My worst enemy. And then, like clockwork, he got diagnosed with cancer. Pancreatic. Such a beautiful word, rolls right off the tip of your tongue. Pancreatic. Instant and terminal. My brother died days after they first caught it. It spread faster than anything they'd ever seen, they told me. A reverse miracle of sorts. I cried no tears at the funeral. I don't think I'll ever cry again. Nora couldn't deal with his death. Her sudden recovery followed by the hope of a new life with a new love, smothered instantly by cruel, hideous irony. She hung herself in Stan's garage a week later. I tried to cry at her funeral, I really did, but it was all empty, hollow and void, a soulless husk. There was this moment, after they lowered her coffin, a brief second of serene silence. No birds, no grieving masses, no wind. Just a perfect moment of tranquility. I could hear him clearly then, in the back of my mind. A cheery chuckle. A hearty laugh. I have a feeling we'll talk again real soon. Just like the uncontrollable growth of abnormal cells, the amassing sum of my sins spread to cover every aspect of my existence. There is no miracle, reverse or otherwise, waiting for me at the end of the line. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no end to the tunnel. There is no end. As I stare into the fathomless depths of my empty void soul, I can only nod and agree. Real soon.